Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We're Forward Radio WFMP Louisville, broadcasting to you from high atop the Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM and live streaming to the world wherever you are. Maybe you're still getting in those last few days of summer vacation. You can find us at forwardradio.org, and that is also the place to go to become a part of our community radio station. This is radio for the people, by the people. We want you to be the people behind these microphones and behind the scenes, helping make it happen. And your contributions also keep us on the air. So click donate while you're at forwardradio.org. Well, I'm really excited to welcome back to the program today. We're keeping it in the family again here on Sustainability Now. My sister-in-law, Madeline Ostrander, is a science journalist and author of the brand new book, Out Finally. You heard about it coming, and it's finally here, called At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, just released on August 2nd by Holt. Welcome back, Madeline, to the program. Thanks so much, Justin. What's it feel like to finally be done? Oh <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because you're never really done. Yeah, that, um, I that's think what I was you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so once a book comes out, there's a lot, you know, a lot to do to <laughs> let everybody know about it. So that's what I'm doing. And talking to you, really. <laughs> right, right. And I imagine yeah. the process of writing a book brings up many thoughts of what another book might look like, right? Um, sure. I mean, I have, um, various ideas, although that's always, um, a little bit of a perilous question for somebody who's just written a book because you, you just went through all this right. work to right. try to get the book out. And suddenly people are like, what are you going to write next? And it feels a little unfair. I know. No, I won't, I yeah. won't really ask you that even though I was teasing at it, but people might find your work elsewhere, right? You're, they're more likely to find another article from you than uh, another book coming out any minute, right? Uh, they can find you on Sierra Magazine, The Nation, uh, Slate, NewYorker.com, places like that. Um, of course, mm -hmm. you used to write for yes. yes Magazine as well. Uh, but tell us a little bit about yourself for those who haven't heard my previous interviews with you and why you felt compelled to write this book. Well, so I'm an environmental journalist. I have a background in environmental science, like you, Justin, yeah, as yeah. you already know. <laughs> <laughs> and it came from a lot of different places. I think that I've known about the issue of climate change for a pretty long time. I actually had a very forward-thinking science teacher in something like the eighth grade who talked to us about climate change. Mm. But, you know, as the impacts have become clearer, and even really before they were clearer to everybody. I mean, I think, you know, after Hurricane Katrina mm. um, in the mid and late 2000s, when I hadn't been living in Seattle very long, it started to feel much more real to me. I have this, these memories of driving around Seattle or, you know, riding the bus around Seattle and thinking, I wonder what will happen to this place? What will the water level be like? What will happen to all these houses that are right along Puget Sound next to the water's edge. What will happen when it starts to get drier? Because you know we were having some years of drought then. And of course the Northwest has always had years of drought, but we're gonna have more of them as it gets warmer. Um, but I didn't find a ton of other people. There were definitely were some, but I didn't find a ton of other people for whom those questions were really front of mind at that point. I think we had a habit 
collectively of talking about climate change like it was something far away, right. like it was something distant and there was ice melting somewhere at the poles. Polar, um, polar bears somewhere. Right. Suffering. Or there were, you know, charts of, of carbon emissions right. showing up on a PowerPoint that Al Gore was <laughs> unveiling to everyone. But um, it wasn't personal to people. And I felt like that was a really important missing piece. Absolutely. And I began looking really hard for stories that would allow people to understand this is what climate change looks like for me. This is what's at stake for my community. This is what's at stake for the places that I love and the people that I care about. And I wanted to write a book framed around that idea. And then I came to thinking about home as a metaphor, you know, not just for where we live, but how do we relate to the place around us? And so mm. I wrote a book basically using that as a way to talk about climate change. Yes. And I'm so grateful for this. I, I, I'm totally on the same page with you that we have to bring this story home, right? Right. Of climate change. It's never going to work to advocate for action on climate change. If people are just imagining some distant land or some polar bear somewhere, we really need to understand what it means for all of us in our homes, the, the places most important to us. And I should have started out mentioning you're joining us from your home in Seattle, right? And, and there's stories in the book about what you have gone through in Seattle with climate change makes me wonder how you're faring right now this summer how's it been it's been a really interesting summer it started out pretty cool for a long time we had a very cool spring it was sort of like classic pacific northwest weather people joked about it feeling like january in june <laughs> but then um just this month uh and at the end of july we had this just at the end of July, we had this really bad heat wave. And it may not sound bad to someone living in Kentucky, but the thing is, physically, when you're not used to heat right. and you have day after day of plus 90 plus degree weather, you really can't tolerate and tolerate it in the same way as if it has come on gradually and just been part of your right. overall right. summer. So we had really cool weather and all of a sudden, boom, nearly a full week of 90 plus weather mm. and most of us don't have air conditioning around here and our houses are really not set up to deal with that level of heat and i, I grew up in a lot of my life in the midwest um i also lived in the northeast and so i think of myself as being pretty used to heat but i really started to feel it i started mm. to feel kind of lightheaded i have another friend who's also a journalist who's from the Midwest and she said that she had a really bad experience of heat exhaustion that lasted mm -hmm. several days after she went for a bike ride in the middle of all of that thinking that she'd be fine yeah. so I mean these are pretty intense impacts that I think we sometimes underestimate and, and it's not just uncomfortable this is deadly right yes extreme yeah. heat is the most deadly of all natural disasters correct yes yeah and we often don't even think of a heat wave as a natural right, disaster right. because it's not dramatic and there isn't a big storm that rolls in. But the heat dome, which was the Pacific Northwest really bad heat wave in 2021, we had record temperatures, the highest temperatures we've ever had, Yeah, yeah. well above 100. And the death toll across the region, if you count Oregon and British Columbia, was around 1,200, which is really devastating and far yeah. worse than you see for a lot of things like wildfires where people often have a chance to evacuate. So mm, yeah. it is really disturbing. 
Well, this book isn't all disturbing. It's hopeful too. And I, and I want to dive into some of that. And it's for, for me, it's such an exciting topic to, to read, to discuss redefining home. And I don't know if it's the geologist geology major in me or whatever, but chapter four, Madeline really appealed to me. And I wondered if we could start out with a reading from the very beginning of chapter four on, on on just what it means to redefine home and that if we look back far enough in the historic geologic record, we might gain a different understanding of how Homo sapiens have thought about home in the past. Sure. So this chapter is called The First Home. In contemporary usage in Western society, the first definition of a home might be a weather-type place with a fixed address where you can sleep at night and go about your personal business by day. Even in this age of online placelessness, such a home is nearly an entry requirement to adult American society. Sure, in theory, you can acquire a job, a voter registration card, and various forms of identification without one. Still, mainstream social norms dictate that most everyone should live under a roof and inside walls, and anyone else is either bending the rules a little or has no other options. But at its core, or maybe its foundation, a home is an old invention. And its importance might be more about imagination than about structure. Many animals, from hummingbirds to great apes, make nests. Even a butterfly will look for a hiding place to rest. A number of animals are builders, termites, ants, beavers, weaver birds. It is impossible to know fully how animals perceive or feel about these kinds of homes. But at least for humans, home is far more than just engineering. It is also a combination of meaning, symbolism, and social function. If we are going to survive this mercurial moment in the planet's history, we may need to revisit the rules of what constitutes such a place. That is awesome. Thank you, Madeline, for reading <laughs> that. Um, I, I, it just puts us in a completely different mindset about what we mean by home, and especially when we start thinking about other creatures on this earth and how they might define home. But if we could keep on this theme of, of archaeology and, and just looking to the deep past, we've kind of inherited a, a problematic Eurocentrism in our anthropological notions, right? And Mm -hmm. And part of this chapter is saying that maybe it's time we ditch that and think differently because Europeans have a particular conception of home that might not be useful in a new climate regime, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily even just Europeans or, you know, you have to think about how modern is our definition of home. I mean, it's pretty modern when you think about home as a piece of real estate. It does go back ways. In one of the other chapters, I point to some of the problematic ideas that we've inherited about how we manage space and how we manage collective resources. For instance, this idea of the tragedy of the commons, which goes back to the 60s, mm -hmm. was based on these sort of hypothetical ideas that if we wanted to manage pasture properly, then we had to divide it all up and everybody had to have their own little piece. Um, that was never really very true, even in Europe. I mean, right. people had commons, people had shared spaces that they managed. And, um, you know, in the writing of the tragedy of the commons, that essay was not based on uh, 
actual empirical evidence. It was based on this sort of hypothetical ideas. And it wasn't until later that scholars like Eleanor Ostrom, you know, actually came back and studied this problem and said, this, this isn't really how it has to be. There's lots and lots of cases around the world of people managing shared resources. I think that the problem with the modern American and Western definition of a home is that it implies that you know we have to wall off and define our own personal little space. Mm -hmm. And I think if we're going to get through a crisis like climate change together, uh, we really have to think much more collectively about how we manage things, including the atmosphere, which is mm. really the ultimate commons. I mean, we share it. We all share it as a planet. Mm. Yeah, and I think humans used to have such a different relationship to the land, too, where in, we look at indigenous cultures around the world, and, and they would define home very differently from what a typical, you know, white person in the city would think of, right? So mm -hmm. uh, this is a, this is important for us as we move forward in, in, in a new world where our traditional way we've housed ourselves is less secure, right? And later in that same chapter, you say that maybe home isn't a thing it's a story so mm. tell us a little bit of what you meant by that and why that's so important in that particular spot i was drawing on some different work by a number of different archaeologists particularly richard potts who's based at the smithsonian rick potts is a really pioneering archaeologist who's done a lot of work in kenya um, in places where the human species really first set foot on the planet as far as we know and one of the things he found was that you know one of the traits that a lot of archaeologists associate with early human origins is this thing they call symbolic reasoning which was really developed as a way of navigating the landscape hmm. you know how do these sort of hairless two-legged creatures <laughs> manage to <laughs> deal with the world and survive a lot of it was about an ability to understand a complex landscape and trade across it and travel across it and yeah. hunt across it and search for um, seafood in yeah. one case, yeah. you know, at the coast of South Africa. That's one of the other studies that was done on early humans mm. is about how people were gathering seafood in this very complex coastal landscape. And they were also gathering pigments so that they could paint on the walls and, you know, draw symbolic things to communicate with one another. Um, but it was a very long time before humans started building houses that we know of yeah. or that we have evidence of. And yet when you look at a lot of hunter-gatherer communities and, and communities where they don't necessarily rely on structures in the same way that yeah. um, Western societies do, those communities do have a an incredibly profound sense of home, but it's often a, a broader sense about the landscape and it's about the community that they yeah. live in. And I think if you broaden that out to, um, you know, some of the other themes in the book and some of the other places that I talk about, um, there's just so much evidence that when we think about home and place as a community, we're just much more resilient. So we, I mean, we started out the conversation talking about heat waves. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting work, um, for instance, by sociologist Eric Kleinenberg that when people are going through a heat wave, even in really vulnerable communities, if those communities have a sense of cohesion and they're checking in on their neighbors mm -hmm. and they care about each other, those communities can withstand a heat wave as well as a community that has a ton of air conditioning. Right. 
and um, our ability to connect and understand where we live and how we're part of something larger and how we're part of a human community and part of an ecosystem, I think has a lot to do with our ability to negotiate these new challenges that are coming at us because of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think we can learn a lot from our past, but another point you make in that same chapter, super important, and you phrased it such a lovely way. You say, humans have never made a home under this kind of sky. And what you mean by that is a sky in which there is 419 parts per million of CO2, which has not been seen in the last 4 million years, right? And I don't know if you've heard my favorite band's new album, Midnight Oils Resist, but there is a lovely lyric in there saying that the sky is a mirror of self-interest and greed. And, and that is where we're at. We are putting our problems up in the sky, right? And our culture is uh, treating the sky as a sewer. And this is going to radically change our future, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's part of this idea of reciprocity. That's something also that it, some other writers that I really admire have written about, like Robin Wall Kimmerer writes a lot about reciprocity and how we think mm. about giving back to the earth. I think that in the book, the way that I reflect on that is this idea of home. So that, you know, if we live in a place, we need to take care of the ecosystem that we're part of. We need to think about how we, you know, tend our, our place, our home, our planet. And um, we haven't really been doing a very good job of that by compartmentalizing what home means and thinking of it just as a very human place or even just as a house that you bought. And I mean, I have a house that right. we bought, but <laughs> I'm not knocking that necessarily, but I'm just saying that we, we need a, a broader sense of how we relate to the places that we live in. And I think that Absolutely. We, we often ignore that dynamic about climate change. We talk about it as something big and abstract and global, even now, as we're seeing all of these impacts in all of these places. Um, yeah. My guest today here on Sustainability Now is Madeline Ostrander, a science journalist joining us from Seattle, author of the brand new book just out this month called At Home on an Unruly Planet. You can find out more information about it. If you liked hearing her read it, there's an audiobook read, uh, read by Madeline, too. You can find links to all that information on her website, MadelineOstrander.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at MadelineVO. So you tell the stories of many different fascinating people and places in this book, and we're probably not going to have time for all of them on today's show, but I'd love for our listeners to hear about some of them at least. And you start off telling us about a fire ecologist in Washington State with a really tough message for humanity, which is that we need to embrace fire. And she even is able to see the beauty and the aftermath of some of these horrific fires. Tell us the story of embracing fire. Yeah, um, I'll tell you that. And maybe just for a little bit of context, I'll also give your listeners kind of a, a sense of how the book fits together so that they know why we're jumping from yeah, yeah, yeah. human origins all the way <laughs> to wildfire in the Pacific Northwest. So the book is held together by four stories. And the stories of four different communities, and each of them is dealing with some kind of crisis related to climate change at home. Um, one of those communities is dealing with wildfire, as Justin just said. One of them is dealing with having to relocate because of some 
pretty serious, terrible uh, coastal and river erosion mm -hmm. in Alaska. Mm -hmm. One of those communities is a historic, a very historic town, St. Augustine on the coast <laughs> of Florida. And they are trying to figure out how to protect all of this incredible history from sea level rise and increased flooding. Yeah. And one is Richmond, California, which is at the front line of a 120 year old refinery. And they've been dealing with a lot of pollution and a major industrial accident in 2012. And they are trying to think about how do we change our economy here at home and become less reliant on this huge oil corporation and can we imagine a future in which that oil corporation perhaps isn't operating here anymore because we need to make those kinds of transitions and those sound very broad but the thing that unites them all is that really in each community there are these people who are very grounded in that place really care about this that place and they go through this kind of crisis and in going through that crisis they realize we're living in a new world because of mm -hmm. climate change and we need to find new ideas and new solutions for yeah. dealing with that crisis. Um, and then the parts that you mentioned about evolution and human origins are sort of places where I pulled back a little and, you know, gave myself a little place to think and muse and write kind of an essay about what yeah. does home mean? Where are we now? So that's how the different pieces of the book fit together. So Susan Pritchard, who is a a fire ecologist is the person that you're speaking of. Yeah. She lives in Winthrop, Washington. She moved there with her wife and they have two children. And so she's been raising a family there as well as doing research there in the many forests and wilderness areas that surround that community. She had a, a really um, powerful background already in climate science. She had studied climate models when she was young and a student and just getting her PhD, she had studied things like pollen grains and lakes and looked at the fire history of mm. the Pacific Northwest. So she knew that Northwest has always had wildfires. And she also knew that the models said that we were going to get bigger, more intense wildfires because of climate change. And then in 2006, uh, after she had moved out to this part of Washington, in the middle of a somewhat, you know, arid, but still very forested part of the state. There was a big fire kind of in her backyard, like in the wilderness, visible from where she lived, a, a mega fire, so fire larger than 100,000 acres. Absolutely it was, frightening fire. I can't imagine anything more frightening. <laughs> yeah. So there was there was that fire and she started studying that fire. And, and even then that fire was mostly out in the wilderness. Hmm. And then even though it was still quite frightening, you're absolutely right. But then in 2014, they had the largest wildfire on record still in mm. the in the state of Washington. And that fire was even more terrifying. Mm. And so Susan both was studying these and also living in this, this place, this new world, this new reality that she had known about from her research for, for a long time. But I think that what her research demonstrated, what she... Um, understood is that the way to deal with fire, the way indigenous communities dealt with fire for many, many generations was actually to understand that it's part of the ecosystem, mm -hmm. that it has to happen. And then if you 
you tend the land if you allow that fire to be part of the ecosystem. So you can use a technique called prescribed fire, which is about lighting little, little controllable fires at times of the year when they're not as likely to escape. And also allowing some natural fires to burn, again, at times of the year when they're not as mm -hmm. likely to escape. You, you bring that back onto the landscape, you allow the fire to consume some of the fuel that um, fuel is what ecologists use when they are talking about like little saplings and little, you know, bits of leaf matter and stumps and stuff that are on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, that stuff carries a fire. And if you burn that off, then the next time a fire comes through, it's going to be less intense. We haven't managed our forests like that in the West. And so you have forests that have lots and lots of stuff that can burn that's built up over the years because we haven't treated them like ecosystems. We haven't allowed fire to come back. And we've when you add on fire. to that, right, exactly, mm -hmm. we fought fire. When you add on to that climate change and heat and drier conditions, we basically have kind of a tinderbox going on in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> and in a lot of the West. It's very frightening. And so we're getting these really large fires all over the place, um, really intense. So in, in 2014, Susan and you know everybody in that community lived through this huge fire that just and um, burned a huge section of this little town called Pateros on the Columbia River. And the community has been really having a big conversation since then about how do we live with fire? How do we recover from fire? But I think what's hopeful about that is that they are having that conversation. Right. I think what's hopeful about that is that they're finding a way through that. And I think that's what a lot of communities around the West need to do. We need to be having these conversations about how do we live in this era, this era when things are firier, when they're harder to control, when we have to accept that there are things that are happening in the natural world around us that we have to reckon with. Yeah. So there's fire to deal with. Mm -hmm. When we look closer to home here in Kentucky and recent events of recent weeks suggest that we also need to learn how to live with water in a new mm -hmm. way. And Appalachia is still mucking out from the horrific uh, flooding uh, exacerbated by climate change, but also mountaintop removal. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the thought of just removing mountains and forests and thinking that uh, the hydrology is going to work in the same way, <laughs> we don't have to worry about it, is crazy. You don't write about that in the book, but you do talk about the impacts of sea level rising, uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's another form of flooding, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. more terminal and insidious uh, because it's never going to dry out. And and I chuckled when you ta talked about an old community. This is this is St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest continuously habitated European settlement in the Americas, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So now this place that has been a, a home for so long is at risk of sinking. And yet we see massive investments in development in places like St. Augustine, Florida. This is insane to me. Mm -hmm. So I guess a couple of things from what you just said. One thing that I would say about the parallels between a place like St. Augustine and Kentucky. So, I mean, of course, water as it moves on the landscape behaves in similar ways, whether it's salty or fresh. But also, I mean, I think even in a place like St. Augustine, you're getting this kind of overlap of 
really intense rainfall, mm. um, you know, in some cases more intense than it used to be in the past, mm -hmm. with higher sea level, with, um, you know, just different kinds of storm surges, more intense hurricanes. And so mm. there are a lot of parallels you can see between what might happen in a coastal city in terms of flooding and what might happen in an inland place like Kentucky. Um, you know, I've also done reporting in Minnesota and there are some communities out there that have had a really horrific flooding from very intense rainfall that is, you know, m very extreme and much more extreme than they used yeah. to commonly get. And you're seeing this in a, in a number of other places around the country. And so I, I think that the strategies that get talked about in San Augustine. I mean, some of them are going to be particular to sea level rise, but some of them are going to be similar in terms of the ways that, you know, stormwater systems are thought about in terms of the ways that we think about how water moves across the landscape and how do we handle rainfall. I think those kinds of struggles and crises are connected. Let's see, your other question was about St. Augustine and development continuing yeah. development yeah. at the coast continued economic yeah. investment yeah mm -hmm. yeah so I mean that's another thing that's really troubling one of the things I write about is that North Carolina had this law that you couldn't even really refer to sea level rise protections and certain kinds of policies when you're planning things so I think there is a, a fair bit of denial and not just denial like you know, we think of denial as being climate denial as being one kind of thing, like someone saying, oh, climate change isn't really happening. But denial can take a lot of different forms, like people might outwardly say climate change is happening, but still be building at the coast because right. there's incentive, there's economic incentive to, to build houses in places that, you know, where it's really not sustainable to have housing. One of the things that will probably be changing how and where that happens is that insurance is starting to no longer um, allow people yeah. really, or, you know, ensure people who are building in those locations. And I think that will really change how we build is already changing how we build along the coasts and also in wildfire prone areas. I mean, there are places where it's near impossible to get insurance because of the wildfire risk. And I think that's going to change who does and does not live in particular places yeah. and where people can build. But it's also, of course, tragic for people who are already living there who are going through a crisis and then can't figure out how to get out of it or, you know, how to relocate without losing everything. Yeah. So we need to really examine the policies that we're developing to help give people a way out. My guest today here on Sustainability Now is Madeline Ostrander. She's the author of the brand new book, At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth, just released this month by Holt. And you can find the links to it and more information about the book at MadelineOstrander.com. She's joining us from Seattle today. There are communities, I know, I, I lived in the Philippines for a while, for instance, uh, where people are entirely adapted to living on water. Uh, they mm -hmm. build their homes on water, floating homes. Uh, and there mm -hmm. are communities like that all over the world. So, I mean, it's not like we can't live in dynamic aqueous conditions. <laughs> it's just that we haven't uh, established our cities and communities around the world in that way. And so that's why, uh, even in a place like Appalachia, very far from the coast, uh, it's about developing a new relationship with land and water, right? <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And and this maybe makes me think about the stories of the the Yupik village of Newtalk in Alaska, where another place built on 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 water, uh, but on frozen water, <laughs> on the <laughs> permafrost uh, that covers what eighty five percent of Alaska and half of Canada and Russia. Right? There's a lot of people who live on frozen water, and these lands are particularly vulnerable. Um, to, to climate change and we're seeing that even when they knew this was coming in the 90s they're still struggling to relocate right mm-hmm. yeah that community has been working to relocate for decades now and um i will say that i i went into that community i've had a lot of sort of personal how can i say um i i have a lot of empathy for that community i've, I've been i felt very concerned about that community because they have just incredible deep cultural history and knowledge of the land. And when that landscape becomes threatened and when their village site becomes threatened, it puts all of that cultural knowledge in jeopardy because that that culture is has a context, right? The way every culture has a context. When you, you know, if if that community were to have to disperse and relocate to Fairbanks, it you know, it really would change the way that they're able to have the sense of continuity and, and history and knowledge of the landscape and and their connection to one another. So it was very important for that community to figure out how they could move together and not just separately, you know, not just take a bunch of FEMA buyouts and head to Anchorage or something. Um, but in various moments, as I've written about that community and I started writing about them in 2015, I've, I've had this sense of up and down, like, are they going to make it? Are they not going to make it? And I've been quite worried about them, but I, I actually feel pretty hopeful about them at this point. They've established, um, you know, the beginnings of what looks like a pretty sturdy community across the river built on bedrock on a place called Nelson Island. Um, they are building infrastructure and um, energy systems that they hope will be able to last in, in the 21st century, even as we get more intense storms. Um, they're looking to solar and wind to supply more of the energy so that they don't have to keep burning diesel. Mm-hmm. They have built hyper energy efficient houses that require a fraction of the amount of heat wow. that a normal house in rural Alaska would require. They're doing some really innovative things with sewer and water systems so that they, you know, potentially don't have to put in underground uh, sewer pipes because that's a very difficult prospect in the middle of yeah. <laughs> a remote Alaskan community. <laughs> Things tend to freeze and break and move around and it's it's just difficult to make that workable. So I have a lot of hope for New Talk. They're not all the way there yet, but they are partially there. As uh, one of my sources said in one of those chapters, Muktavik, which is the place across the water. Muktavik isn't just a plan, it's a place. So I I think that community is actually going to survive into the foreseeable future, but it's been a rough ride for all of them. It's been difficult to negotiate. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting a little close to the end of our time. I I don't want to miss out on the story about Richmond, California, Um, an oil refinery built in 1902 by Standard Oil that, you know, this was a place of classic World War II boom with the military industrial complex, right? And then bust. And 
it's a, a landing site for the great migration of, of a- African Americans from the South, uh, but mm-hmm. a place that had Jim Crow. <laughs> it's just uh, I I loved learning about the history of Richmond, and then the more mo- modern history was the 1989 explosion at that refinery. Tell us about this frontline community in the struggle against climate change. So as you say, Richmond, California is not only built around a 120-year-old refinery, but the refinery actually predates the city. So wow. as long yeah, as long as Richmond has been there, there's been a refinery. The refinery is one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters in the state of California. And Chevron, the company that runs it, is one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters in the world. So the place is very connected, even though it's a small-ish city on the San Francisco Bay, the place is very connected to the global questions about how we deal with climate change. Um, One of the people whose stories I follow through those chapters is named Doria Robinson. She lived through a number of overlapping crises in Richmond. She lived through the crack cocaine epidemic that affected so many cities and so many communities, communities of color in the 80s. And then she lived through multiple refinery accidents. One was in 1989. Another one that I mentioned in the book was in 2007. And there was a very large one in 2012, probably the largest one that at least she recalled and most of the other people that I talked with. I think especially the one in 2012 was really a turning point for that community. People had been organizing and trying to talk about how do we become a healthier community. Doria runs a nonprofit that focuses on urban farming and growing gardens. And they did talk about how to create alternatives and you know other things that the community could be part of that were not connected to this large source of pollution. But in 2012, people got really angry. And I think mm. they got angry partly because they had had all of these years of, of organizing and starting to feel like something else was possible there. And they felt angry because this refinery accident was putting in jeopardy all of these dreams that they had. Mm. And it's led to an ongoing conversation over the last 10 years about what could this community become if it wasn't a refinery town? Right. Could we at some point imagine the refinery retiring and closing down or becoming some, becoming something else. And how is that connected to these other crises that were part of these other global crises? Yeah. Um, because of course, California has also gone through drought, huge amounts of wildfire smoke have blown in and hovered over the San Francisco Bay and created this giant orange cloud in mm. some cases. And um, the community has been kind of in the middle of all of these different things that are going on at once. Well, we, we're we getting close to the end of our time, and I, and I definitely want to end with a, a reading from the epilogue. But one last point I want to touch on is that you've helped me think about the whole concept of homesickness in a new way through this book. And what, what we mean by that in the, this context is that we grieve or we miss a home that's a different place in time when we didn't have these challenges of climate change. Uh, and you introduced to us this concept of solastalgia. Mm-hmm. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> you did, yeah. <laughs> Tell us what that means. 
So nostalgia is a concept, um, it's a word coined by Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht. He was originally studying coal mining communities in on the east coast of Australia, and he coined the term soul nostalgia to describe this idea that we will feel homesick or we can feel homesick when the places that we care about start changing in ways that make them less comfortable or less right. recognizable. Right. And because of climate change, Albrecht believes that we're all going to start feeling this. And I think I think he's correct. I mean, I certainly have this sometimes this sense of, of longing or sadness about places that I live in, including the place that I live in now. And you know, what that place used to be like and what it's like now that we have more and more heat waves and more and more wildfires. He also has a companion concept that I think is really instructive, especially when you think about the way that this book is put together, which is this idea of solophilia, which he defines as the joy and the sense of comfort and connection that we feel when we come together to try to protect our homes and the places that we mm, care about. Yeah. And that's also kind of a theme throughout the book right. and something that I really came to and in, in, in a sense a, a lesson for me in writing the book is that communities, when we come together, have a lot more power than we realize to address this crisis. When we come together as communities, we have a lot more resilience against the impacts of this crisis. And I think it's a scale that we overlook when we talk about climate change. I think that when we connect with the places we live in, that will really help us face the impacts of the climate crisis. Absolutely. Madeline, this has been wonderful. I want I want to let you do one last reading before we let you go. Uh, and it's the very last paragraph in the epilogue. I think it's, it leaves us on such a wonderful, hopeful note. I think it's perfect to end the program with, if you would. Sure, yeah. And while many of the problems we face are global, some of the most imaginative, powerful, passionate solutions come from home. Home is a place we can act. Home is a place we can take care of. Home is a feeling that can inspire us. Home is a way for us to rethink and reimagine and remake our lives. Home asks us to adjust ourselves, to rewrite ourselves, to reconsider who we are again and again, each time we occupy a new space or refashion an old one. We are all building these walls and roofs and lives together on this one messy and unruly blue planet. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Madeline, for joining us today and for, my gosh, writing this incredibly helpful book in this incredibly unruly time, as you say. Uh, it, we need these stories. We need these different ways of conceptualizing home uh, if, if we're going to move forward and not just throw up our hands in despair. Uh, and so your work is so valuable to this transition. Uh, and, and I really honor you for doing it. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you for having this wonderful radio program and for talking with me. Yes. Good luck with your book tour. Uh, I, you probably don't have any Kentucky dates yet or anything like that, but people can learn about uh, where you'll be speaking and things like that at MadelineOstrander.com, I assume. Yeah, I'll be getting some more information up there as well as, as we get more dates and more um, events planned. Well, yeah. Fantastic. Good, good luck with all of it. And thank you so much again.
Thank you. All right. Stay tuned, folks. Coming up in just a second, I got your community action calendar with a bunch of ideas for how you can get engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned, my friends. While the sun shines bright on my whole Kentucky home, tis summer and the people are gay. And the corn tops rise while the meadows are in bloom. Them birds are making music all the day. Said weep no more, my lady, oh. Song for my old Kentucky home, for my old Kentucky home far away. Now the young folks roll on that little coffin floor. Oh, maybe all happy and bright. By and by, hard times will come a knocking at the door. My old Kentucky home, good night. For my old Kentucky home For my old Kentucky home Far away Daddy Rico And we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station, Forward Radio, WFMPLP, Louisville, broadcasting at 106.5 FM and live streaming at forwardradio.org. And with the sweet sounds of local favorites Appalachian behind me now, many thanks to them for giving us permission to post their great local music on the podcast versions of our programs, which you can find archived at forwardradio.org. You can learn more about them at appalatin.com. It is time, my friends, to get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out. Let's look at how we can take action for sustainability this week here in Louisville. Well, Tuesday, August 16th at midnight is the deadline to register for Louisville Grows' Plant 5K fundraiser with a special registration giveaway. The Plant 5K Run and Walk is Louisville Grows' annual fundraiser designed to support their mission to grow greener, healthier neighborhoods by planting 5,000 trees by 2025. This year's event will be on Saturday, September 17th from 8.30 to 11 a.m. in Jeffersonville, Indiana. 
and it offers a team option for those who want to come together in support of a healthier environment for the whole community. You can join or create a team for an organization, business, school, or social group. Visit plant5k.org to learn more and register. Again, the deadline for a special registration giveaway, which involves two vouchers for a soccer match of your choice to see Louisville City or Racing Louisville, as well as an official promo scarf, is coming up by midnight on Tuesday, August 17th. So you want to go to plant5k.org. That's the number five, plant5k.org to learn more and sign up today. Speaking of Louisville Grows, they are looking for volunteers to help out in the greenhouse with their Seeds and Starts program. Uh, On Tuesday, August 16th, they need volunteers from 5.30 to 8 p.m. And on Thursday, the 18th, from 9 a.m. to noon at the Louisville Grows Healthy House, 1639 Portland Avenue. Louisville Grows needs your help to prepare for their fall seeds and start sale. They need help in planting seeds, mixing soil, watering, and performing other tasks in the greenhouse. No experience is required, and everyone is welcome to come play in the dirt. Seeds and Starts volunteers will also receive a discount coupon for the fall sale, at which all proceeds go towards funding their community garden grant and urban agriculture programs. You can find more information and the link to register at louisvillegrows.org. RG. Now, coming up Wednesday, the 17th at 6 p.m., it is the next Green Drinks Louisville, and this one is taking place at Waterfront Botanical Gardens at the end of Frankfurt Avenue near River Road at 1435. For this month's Green Drinks, we'll be hearing about the history of the Waterfront Botanical Gardens, its former history as a landfill for the city, and learn about their horticultural operations. Weather permitting, uh, we'll have a guided tour of the gardens, and I think the weather's going to be pretty phenomenal this week. Drinks will follow at Gold Bar over on Story Avenue, 1601. The uh, Louisville Sustainability Council's Green Drinks Drinks, of course, is a casual bi-monthly meetup of community members and organizations featuring different speakers from across the city to educate and inform the community on local happenings, projects, and initiatives like the Waterfront Botanical Gardens. Each presentation is followed by Q&A discussion and networking. Green Drinks takes place on the third Wednesday of every other month at 6 p.m. at rotating venues around town. You can learn more at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org. Come on out this Wednesday at 6 p.m. at the Waterfront Botanical Gardens. The next one will be featuring electric vehicles over at Logan Street Market on October 19th. And it wraps up on December 21st out at West 6th Brewery in Nulu. Now, coming up on Saturday, August 20th, there is going to be a Wyandotte Park cleanup down in the south end from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. That's at 11.04 Feature Street. You can help us clean up Wyandotte Park. Louisville Metro Parks is seeking volunteers to help trim overgrowth and help remove litter from the park. They'll be meeting at the tennis courts, which are close to Taylor Boulevard. Wear closed toed shoes and dress for a mess. Bring a water bottle for yourself as well. You can learn more and sign up to volunteer at bestparksever.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact their new volunteer coordinator, Danny Lacey, at 502-574-6403 or dani.lacy at louisvilleky.gov. But you can just come on out at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday the 20th at Wyandotte Park 
1104 Beecher Street. Now, also coming up on Saturday the 20th, Louisville Sustainability Council is presenting a volunteer fair out at Waterfront Park at their swing garden near the Big Four Bridge. It'll be from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it will be a one-stop shop to get plugged in with sustainability-related organizations all across the city. There'll be over 30 organizations and community groups representing topics ranging from renewable energy to food justice and urban agriculture to outdoor engagement and recreation. This event will take place at the Waterfront Park Swing Garden on August 20th uh, from 10 a.m. To, to 1. The LSC Volunteer Fair is a free opportunity for organizations to recruit volunteers for their mission while sharing about their work. Residents interested in volunteer opportunities can learn about multiple organizations at once while finding opportunities and organizations that best align with their own interests, time, and skills. Of course, volunteering can come in many different forms, uh, physical work like boots on the ground, advocacy like volunteering your voice and time, and of course, financial support as well. This event is free, family-friendly, and open to the public. You can learn more at LouisvilleSustainabilityCouncil.org or just come on out on Saturday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. out at Waterfront Park's Swing Garden near the Big Four Bridge. Now, also happening just after that on Saturday the 20th from noon to 6 p.m., it's Planting Seeds for Restorative Growth out at the Norton Sports and Learning Complex. And this is a mass meetup made up of organizations led by and serving West and Southwestern Louisville communities. Through their incredible work, this event will provide information, resources, and services regarding housing, healthcare, the fight for clean air and water, healthy food, education, workforce development opportunities, and voter registration all in one location. They hope to see you there. It's free to attend. It's family-friendly fun. We'll be there, including giveaways, musical performances, food trucks, and programming demonstrations. Presentations will include uh, those from leaders like Councilman Jacory Arthur, Taylor Ryan, and others. It is brought to you by Change Today, Change Tomorrow, the Louisville Central Community Center, the Justice League, LOU, Play Cousins Collective, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, and the Enviro Institute at UofL, also sponsored by the Parks Alliance, Wilderness Louisville, the Environment Institute, and the Greater Louisville Sierra Club. This is going to be a great event. If you have any questions, you may email Lane Taylor at L-A-Y-N-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R-0-7 at gmail.com. And I also want to remind you that every Sunday at noon, there's a great event called Bikes, Crews, and Brews that rolls out of Logan Street Market in beautiful Shelby Park. You can bike through Louisville with a community partner, Bikes, Crews, and Brews. It's a great way to meet new folks. They welcome all cycling levels with different routes each week. You can roll out uh, with them every Sunday at noon for this low-stress cruise with local brewery stops along the way, and it returns to Logan Street Market around 3 p.m. I've heard from many folks that this is a great group and a great time, very welcoming to all. And I also want to remind you about the many Louisville Farmers Markets this is peak season for the farmers markets and you won't want to miss all the fantastic local produce that is available now and will be disappearing soon. So take advantage of these last days of summer. Make sure to check out all the great farmers markets available in Louisville. Here's the rundown in alphabetical order. The Bardstown Road Farmers Market over at 1733 Bardstown Road. It's on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to noon. The Beulah Farmers Market at 6704 Bardstown Road is every Monday from 3 
to 7 p.m. The Brownsboro Road Farmer's Market at 4000 Brownsboro Road is on Thursdays from 3 to 6. The Douglas Loop Farmer's Market at uh, 2005 Douglas Boulevard is on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The East End Farmer's Market out on Factory Lane is Tuesdays, 5 to 7 p.m. The Gray Street Farmer's Market at 485 East Gray Street is on the first Thursday of every month from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The Jefferson Town Farmer's Market is at 10434 Waterson Trail on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Middletown Farmer's Market, 11721 Main Street, is on Wednesdays from 3 to 6. The Norton Commons Farmer's Market, 6301 Moonseed Street, is on Sundays from noon to 4. The Phoenix Hill Nulu Farmer's Market is at 1007 East Jefferson Street, and it's on Tuesdays from 3 to 6. The Prospect Area Farmer's Market at 12900 West Highway 24 is on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. The Rainbow Blossom Farmer's Market out on Lexington Road is on Sundays from noon to 4. The Shively Farmers and Artisans Market at 3920 Dixie Highway is every other Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., including this August 20th and then September 3rd, 17th, October 1st, October 15th, and it ends on October 29th. And the St. Matthew's Farmer's Market at 4100 Shelbyville Road is on Saturdays from 8 a.m. to noon. And finally, the Westport Road Baptist Farmer's Market, 9705 Westport Road, is on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Another important reminder, there is a new library in town that I want you to support and to patronize. The Louisville Tool Library is over on Logan Street in Shelby Park, and it had its grand opening on July 1st. It is a community-based 501c3 nonprofit lending library dedicated to accessibility of resources, waste reduction, sharing, and growth through education. Operating similarly to a traditional book-filled library, members of the Louisville Tool Library are able to borrow household items such as gardening gear and seeds, sewing machines, drills, painting supplies, shovels, and a wide variety of hand and power tools, outdoor recreation equipment, and more. You can learn more about the library and how to support it with your donations of tools, funding, and volunteer time at louisvilletoollibrary.com. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Be well.